0: Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Ephesians 5, 15 through 33. This is found on page 978 in your pew Bible, and if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church." In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Okay, church, uh, how are you doing after that scripture reading? <laughs> Pastor, what are you going to say about this passage this morning? Maybe you're wondering, um, what, do we, what do we think about this, this text? And so even before we jump into looking at it more closely, I just want to pause and note two things. One, this is one of the reasons that we at Christ Community are committed to teaching through whole uh, books of the Bible, uh, because uh, if you're just asking me texts that I would like to preach um, that seem easy and comfortable, I probably would not have picked this one. But as we we're going through Ephesians, uh, here it is, and so we're going to talk about it. And then secondly, I just want to name, too, that we all bring in different uh, experiences, uh, emotions, backgrounds when it comes to marriage and how we understand that and the Bible's teaching on marriage. And so I want to just pause right now and pray over us before we even look any further at this text, just knowing all that we carry into this room with us, especially when it comes to a conversation and a text like this. So let's do that now. Uh, Father in heaven, some of us, um, we heard the Scripture writing this morning, and that passage had been so distorted or abused for us growing up that we're not even sure that we can or want to stay in this room after we heard it. I just pray for those who are in that place that you would heal and comfort them, Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus, others of us are coming today eager to hear what you, our true and better husband, have to say about marriage. Holy Spirit, would you teach us today? And Father, some of us are in great marriages. Spirit, would you strengthen and preserve those marriages this morning? Others of us are profoundly disappointed in our marriages, and maybe we came into the space this morning barely hanging on. Holy Spirit, would you rescue Renew, bring hope. Father, others of us have experienced, or maybe even today are experiencing abuse in marriage. Would you, Father, be their protector and defender? And would we, your people, the church, have eyes to see and ears to hear and courage to stand with them today? Uh, Father, others of us have experienced the pain of betrayal, divorce. Holy Spirit, would you bring healing for the pain, forgiveness for the guilt, covering for the shame? Still others of us have experienced the unspeakable pain of the death of a spouse. Spirit, would you bring a comfort and a peace that passes understanding, and would they experience your church as a body of people who mourn with those who mourn? Uh, father others of us have longed to be married and for whatever reason uh, haven't haven't found that spirit would you forgive us when we as a community have made an idol of marriage communicating to those who are not married that they are somehow less than Uh, others of us father are content in our singles and we're happy in that and spirit would you remind all of us married or single that because jesus who lived the perfect human life was never married, that we know that human marriage is not the ultimate end. Would we, by their witness, be reminded that Jesus is the true and better spouse? And Father, finally, some of us in this room today, were students, and the, even the possibility of marriage just seems like a really distant thing that's far away as a middle school or high school student. Spirit, would you encourage them with your word for today, shaping them into the men and women uh, who you want them to be, who embody the fruit of the Spirit. Amen. Okay, so question to ask about a passage like this is always, how is this good news? How is a passage like this good news for us? And specifically, um, how is this passage good news for women? Because we believe at Christ Community, I believe that the Bible is good news, that every page of this book is pointing us to Jesus, who is the ultimate good news, Uh, the one who doesn't just bring good advice, but who is the embodiment of good news. But some passages, it just takes a little more work to see and to understand where the good news is, not not because it isn't there uh, and not because the news isn't good, uh, but because of either our own cultural lenses or maybe our distance from the original cultural context. It just adds statics to the broadcast. And if you've ever been watching uh, a, a TV show over, you know, the antennas, these things that used to bring us TV shows, or listening to the radio in your car, and you start to get static on a channel, and it, the picture gets distorted, and you just want to change the channel, right? And I, I think that is often what happens when we encounter passages like this in our Bibles. There's, there's a lot of static. It's hard to hear. It's hard to listen to. And we just want to change the channel. But together, uh, this morning, I want us to try to sort of tune the dial so that we can hear the good news that's here, because there is good news here. And this is where it's important to remember also that the, as Bible readers, our, our first goal whenever we read a passage of Scripture is to understand it on its own terms first before we react or respond to it. And, and this is… this is… Just good listening skills with any person or any book you're reading. You want to just first say, okay, what is, what is this person trying to say and giving them the benefit of the doubt, listening and tr- for understanding before we react or respond. And this is also, too, where it's critical to keep in mind that while the Bible is written for us, it's absolutely written for us, in the first instance, the Bible is not written directly to us. Uh, Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, speaking in Koine Greek, which is he's not writing to us in Kansas City in the 21st century in English. So the Bible is written for us, but it's not written to us. And often that distance of culture and language can throw up barriers to understanding what the heart of a text is. So we need to understand the words and the cultural context before we reject or dismiss anything. So that's what I want us to do together this morning, if we can, is to look at where's the good news here? How do we understand the cultural context in the, the, which this was written? How does that then shape us today? Now, I can promise you that I'm not going to answer every question that you have or alleviate every tension uh, that, that I think we all feel at, in different ways about a text like this. So I just I want to say that. And, and when it comes to the tension part of that, I want to even say that's, that's okay, that's a good thing. Because there are going to be uh, places in Scripture that are going to cause us to feel tension. And that's not a sign that, you're, that your faith is weak or um, that there, there's some kind of a problem. It's actually a, an important part of having a relationship with a real person. And God is a real person with whom we have a relationship. And if you have a, a real relationship with any person, they have to be able to tell you things occasionally that you don't want to hear. If you have a, a friendship in which your friend can never tell you anything you don't like or that you disagree with or that you question, then that's a, that's a pretty shallow relationship. And so there, there are moments, if we want a real relationship with God, where He's going to tell us things that maybe we don't, we don't want to hear at first. And that's okay. That's a, it's a part of having a real relationship with Him through His Word is being able to sit in the tension of things that we may not want to hear or that are uncomfortable or that cause tension. So I think it's also important to remember that, that sometimes I think we can have the impression that, it's like, oh, that's, that's true for us in the 21st century in Kansas City that we feel all this tension. Um, But Paul's original readers, uh, they just sort of took all this in because this just affirmed everything that they believed culturally, and that actually couldn't be further from the truth, that Paul's original readers in Ephesus, who he wrote this letter to, would have felt just as much, if not more, dissonance, maybe in different ways, but just as much dissonance as we feel today reading this passage. And and why is that? Because the New Testament and and, and Jesus and Paul, they always are turning things upside down. As Professor Michelle Barnwell points out, she's a New Testament scholar, she says Jesus always turns marriage on its head. And if you only jot down one thing today, I'd encourage you to to jot down that, that Jesus always turns marriage on its head. And so today as we look at how Jesus does that, how he turns marriage on its head, we're going to see three things about true Christian marriage. The true Christian marriage is always subversive. It is always sacrificial and it's always a signpost for both men and women so always subversive always sacrificial and always a signpost and actually every one of those descriptors in that statement of true and christian always is really important and i chose them on purpose because not every marriage is a christian marriage right lots of people across time and culture have been married but what paul is giving us in this passage is a distinctly christian view of marriage? What, how do Christians think about what marriage is and how it ought to, to work, and, and what, is it, what is the meaning of it? And, and that idea of, of always is the key because no matter whether you're in the first century or the 21st century, marriage is, uh, Christian marriage, true Christian marriage, is always challenging the culture that it's in. And that's, again, just as true in the Greco-Roman first century as it is in the 21st century secular progressive West. And then the true is also a really key word, and this is what I mean by true Christian marriage. True, because not every marriage between two people who call themselves Christians reflects the vision of marriage that Paul has here. And some people have used the words in this passage to justify abuse, and I just want to say right from the beginning, before we even know that, that is not true Christian marriage. And, and look, it's just not going to be tolerated for a second within Christ's community. And so, if you are a man or a woman, an adult or a child, and you are here this morning, and you're listening to this message, you no, know, if you are experiencing abuse in your home or anywhere, call the police and then talk to your pastors. We will help you, Okay? So true Christian marriage is always subversive, it's always sacrificial, and it's always a signpost. And the first one of those is really important. So I want you to follow along with me this morning. So if you grab a Bible, you have it on your phone. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And this first thing that we're going to see here is that true Christian marriage is always subversive. And what do I mean by subversive? I mean that it always undermines the, sort of the status quo within the culture. And, and Christian marriage is always doing that. Again, whether in the first century or in the 21st century, it's always undermining the status quo of what marriage has been perceived to be. And, and this is where we have to do that kind of tough cultural and linguistic work, because when we read, in our cultural moment, I think when we read that line, wives submit to your husbands, I'm guessing that many of us think not of that that is subversive, but that's regressive. So, what's going on here? And, and again, how can this be Good news. And so, I want to show you in this section three ways that Christian marriage is radically subversive in Paul's cultural moment, and then I want to just note a couple of ways in which it continues to be just as subversive at our cultural moment today. So, number one, Paul gives us in this passage, there's subversive definitions to the key terms. And this is really true now and then. And the pastor at Blackhawk Church in Madison, Wisconsin, another church in our denomination, pointed this out to me. And he notes that when Paul talks about love in this passage, husbands, love your wives, he he isn't meaning a romantic feeling, right? Uh, Rather, love equals a commitment to act for the well-being of another. Love is an action. And this is the picture we get of of how Jesus defines what love is. It is giving your life for another. And and the prime example of the kind of love that Paul is talking about is he actually gives us earlier in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, which we actually looked about about two, three weeks ago. We, We looked at this passage where Paul writes these words. This is how he begins this whole section. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Remember we talked about loved people love people. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us, so Christ is now the the definition of what is, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. To love like Jesus is not just to have warm feelings for someone, but to be willing to give up your own desires and preferences for the sake of the one you love. Okay, but, but what about submission? I think this is the word that we struggle with the most. But you see, in Christian communities shaped by Jesus, to submit equals to prioritize the interests and well-being of others above your own. That's what. However our culture uses that language, and maybe we need better language, but the word that's being translated there, bringing it across, this idea of submission is to prioritize the interests and well-being of others above your own. That's what Paul is calling us to. And this pa- pattern of, of love and submission are how every Christian in Jesus' family, married or single, young or old, male or female, are to, that's how we're all supposed to treat one another. Whether you're married or not, this is just how Christians relate in God's family. We love one another. We prioritize the interest and well-being of the other above our own interests and needs. And you see this, Ephesians 5, two. We read it already. And walk in love as Christ loved the church. That's written to every Christian. Every Christian is to love other Christians, to love everyone. And then in Ephesians 5, 21, Paul says this, starting in verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's written to every Christian, male and female, young and old, In fact, our church family actually did a, we have this tool called The Formed Life, which is a, um, yeah, it's a kind of a daily discipleship uh, tool. If you've never checked it out, just go to theform.life. Um, but we focus on different spiritual disciplines. Back in early 2021, we actually did a whole discipline series, a habit, spiritual practice habit of submission in um, that, for us as a whole church family. How do we submit to one another? To prioritize the needs of another above our own. This is is how Jesus loved and served others. So committing to act for the well-being of others, prioritizing the interests and well-being of others over our own. This is how it is like us as Christians to act. Again, whether we're married, whether we're single, whether we're young, old, male, female, these are the subversive definitions. This is a new way of being a community together. But there's more here, and that's that this passage is also subversive in who it addresses, who's spoken to, who Paul speaks to, and also in the proportion of how much he speaks to them. So, what do I mean by that? Well, we may be taken aback that Paul sort of seems to come right out first and and address his wife first as somehow, you know, that he's really got to go after them first. But the fact that he even speaks to wives at all is incredibly subversive in his cultural context. Because what Paul is doing here in the second half of Ephesians chapter 5, in the first part of Ephesians chapter 6, is what is called a, kind of a, it's called a household code. So this is actually a literary form in the first century where, that was, was well-known, and lots of philosophers or teachers would give what, these household codes, and they were written and addressed to the patriarch in that, in that cultural context about how do you manage your household and kind of keep those under you sort of in line. And this goes all the way back to the philosopher Aristotle began writing these, these household codes. So Paul takes this form that his readers were used to but he completely transforms it. So listen to what scholar Timothy Gombas points out. He says, in other household codes, which there's lots of these in the ancient world, the same sets of relationships appear. So husbands, wives, fathers, children, masters, slaves. But the point of the instruction in those other codes is for the ultimate comfort of the husband and the patriarch. That is, the counsel is directed toward the well-ordered household with a view to how the patriarch would maintain control over every other member of the community. Paul's instruction, therefore, is radically subversive. Where there are hierarchical relationships in that cultural context, Paul addresses the subordinate members first, giving them unprecedented dignity. Not only does he speak to them, Gombus point out, but he actually speaks to them first. They are full and equal participants in the people of God. Among God's new people, there is no place for control, domination, manipulation, or exploitation. Rather, mutual respect and service is to be the norm. So, even while passages like this still may make us uncomfortable, still we may feel some tension around it, but I hope we can see how radical this was in Paul's cultural moment, especially in that he's calling them to a voluntary submission. He's not saying, husbands, make your wives submit. That's antithetical to the gospel. It's not forced. It's not coerced. It's not domineering. It's not abuse. How does That's not how Jesus treats his, his bride, the church. That's not biblical submission. And in fact, if you're in a relationship like that, where your husband is demanding, coercing you into submission, that's evil. That's an absolute antithesis of Christ-like sacrificial love. And if you find yourself in that relationship, tell us. As your pastors will help you talk to us. Moreover, uh, Paul gives husbands much more instruction on loving their wives than he does about wives submitting to their husbands. Actually, 70% plus of the words in this passage are directed to husbands about loving their wives. That alone should tell us something, right? And and the third way in this text is subversive in the first century context is, is similar. Like with the household code, Paul uses and takes up this metaphor of the head and the body, and, and uses that to talk about both Jesus' relationship to the church, but also how husbands and wives relate to it. It's, it's a metaphor, it's a picture. But it's not one that he just makes up out of thin air. This was another common metaphor that was used often in the ancient world, particularly it would often be used to describe the relationship of the emperor to the empire, to the, to the subjects, right? And the way it was employed was, the emperor is, is, is in charge of everything. He's the one who gives guidance. And so the, the body, the people, have to sacrifice themselves for the sake of the emperor in battle and all these kinds of things. But as Michelle E. Barnwell explains, this passage turns that metaphor on its head. The body isn't to sacrifice for the head, in Paul's writing. It's the other way around. The husband is to sacrifice like Jesus for the body of the wife. She writes this, the fundamental nature of this reversal is critical. And it would have struck Paul's audience not only as odd, but even more so against nature. The sacrifice of the head would be suicidal for the entire body since the head provides guidance for the whole. The reversal of expectations in regard to love would also seem shocking in light of the traditional honor conventions because Paul tells the most esteemed part, the head, to love the body. He asks husbands to do something that goes against the fundamental order of society in the first century, which would have been considered disruptive and even dangerous. So Paul is, is right, and again, this is, this is classic Jesus. This is an upside-down kingdom lived out in, in, in marriage, right? Jesus is always saying, the first will be last. The one who wants to be the greatest will serve. All this, this is an upside-down view of relationships that Jesus brings in that's to characterize how all relationships work. But, but it gets even better. Check this out. How does Jesus serve the body, the church, in this setting, the model for how husbands are to love their wives. Look at verses 25 to 27, and look at the metaphors that Paul uses here. He says, husbands, love your wives, and then, this is, and then he describes, as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify us to make, make holy. And then listen to these metaphors, having cleansed her by the washing of Of water with the word, so that he might present her to the church, her the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's the language of of bathing, washing, laundering. And Cynthia Westfall points out in this passage that the head supplies low-status domestic services to the body that ordinarily would have been expected of women and slaves in that cultural context. The head nurtures as a mother nurses nurses and cares for a baby. In fact, Paul has told husbands to wash their wives' feet and much more. Again, Paul is saying to husbands who in that patriarchal culture of the first century had all the power, he's saying act like Jesus who used his power, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So this was incredibly subversive to how marriage worked. In the first century what paul is saying here and i hope you're beginning to see that but what about in our culture today and i think it's just as subversive in our cultural moment today in at least two ways so i just want to highlight two of these first christian marriages are uh, a dance they're not a competition or a contest so often in our cultural moment, marriage relationship is functionally treated as this zero-selling game where each spouse has to fight to get what they want, and there are sort of winners and losers. It's, a, it's kind of this, this tit-for-tat, quid pro quo exchange. Oh, you're, you're going to go on a girls' weekend? Well, then I guess I get to buy a new tool for the shop. <laughs> oh, you, you got to be gone for work again all next week? Well, I guess I'm going to have to do a little more shopping on Amazon, you know. But this is not the vision of Christianity we get here, not the vision of Christian marriage. Instead, it's one where the husband and the wife are constantly trying to outdo one another in caring for the other, seeing how they can go lower in order to lift the other up and serve the other. Uh, Second, this vision of Christian marriage is also subversive in our culture because it insists that marriage is a covenant relationship, not a consumer relationship. A covenant relationship, not a consumer relationship. I heard Tim Keller talk about this years ago. Uh, that a, a consumer relationship is one where your needs are more important than the relationship. Right, so just last week, Rachel and I switched internet service because Google Firewall was going to give us a, a better deal, a better service than what we were getting with, with Spectrum. Okay? That's a consumer relationship. I don't have any sort of covenantal loyalty to Spectrum as a company. Right? The, the moment that another company is going to provide me with a better service, a better price, My needs are more important, so I switch, right? If Target has it for a better price than Amazon, you buy it from Target. We have lots of consumer relationships, and that's great. Those are good. It's just marriage is not one of them. Because marriage is a covenant relationship, which actually that means instead of my needs, my wants being more important than the relationship, we actually say "This, this relationship, this thing that we've entered in together is something that's more important than my preferences at any given moment. I'm actually willing to give up my preferences, give up some of my desires for the sake of the other, for the sake of this this thing. And increasingly in the secular progressive West, till death do us part is being replaced by as long as our love shall last. It's like, look, if at some point that I'm not feeling it anymore, that actually becomes more important than the relationship. And that, just, that cannot be among us in our marriages, church. And that doesn't mean there aren't times when divorce is permissible or, or even necessary, and again, those kind of contexts of abuse that's ongoing. But let me just say, it's always devastating, and it's always a cause for mourning. because Marriage is a covenant relationship, and covenant relationships take sacrifice, which brings us to our next point, and that is not only are Christian marriages always subversive, they're also sacrificial. True Christian marriage is always sacrificial. And in every wedding I do as a pastor, and, and often it, those are taking place right here on this platform. I've stood on this platform tons and tons of times. Uh, every time I do that, I look at the, the groom and the bride in the eye as I'm doing that wedding, and I I'll, I'll look right at them and I say, as, as hard as it is, as hard as it may be to imagine on the joy of this wedding day, there will be times when marriage will feel like a sacrifice, when it will feel like a sort of death, because it is. And, and inevitably, there's some like, you know, aunt or uncle who's been out there, who's has been married for 30, 40 years, who always laughs at that point, right, and chuckles. Because it's true, even the very best marriages, and those of you who, who've been married for more than a few minutes, you know this, don't you? You know it's true. That marriage will feel like a sacrifice. It'll feel like a kind of death sometimes because it is. Uh, marriage, in a sense, is death to self, <laughs> to selfishness. Or, as uh, Deputy Parks Department Director Leslie Nope says, uh, every time a couple gets married, two single people die. Now, now, uh, Leslie, I think here though, she's speaking better than she knows. I think because in Christian marriage, you have two people who are becoming one flesh, right? They're saying, no longer are my personal preferences paramount anymore. This, this thing, this other person, this thing that we've come in together this marriage is, is actually more important than that. That I'm giving myself fully and completely to this person in this covenant relationship. And in fact, from the very beginning, friends, Marriage has been marked by sacrifice. In Genesis chapter 2, this is before sin ever enters the world. The husband's side is pierced to give life to the bride, just as one day Jesus' side would be pierced to give life to his bride, the church, for you and me. As husbands sacrifice, playing the part of Jesus dying for his bride, wives play the part of God's beloved who are so cherished and protected and desired that they delight to respond in love to their husbands, a picture of Jesus' relationship to His church. And that's, that's ultimately what submission is. It's a voluntary deferral of, of rights, a yielding of desires. It's about serving one another. And so in marriage, you will either kill your selfishness, or slowly over time, your selfishness will kill your marriage in fact, if you want to figure out just how selfish you are, you should get married and then a few years later have a few kids, and that will uh, un- uncover a d- deep depth of selfishness that maybe you didn't know were there. In fact, and, and it, you know, our, our six-year-old gets this. Our six-year-old daughter, Isla, told us the other day at the, you know, dinner table we we're talking, she's like, I'm not going to get married. He's like, oh, okay. Isla, why is that? She said, like, a husband and kids seem like way too much work. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> she gets it, right? Uh, now, selfishness is radically different from proper self-care. And, and in fact, a neglect of self-care can be just as destructive to a marriage as selfishness. But what's the difference between a proper self-care and selfishness? Uh, one counselor explained this way. I thought this was really helpful. He says, in essence, self-care is about filling yourself up so you can be the best spouse, a parent, friend, employee, boss, and person you can be. That's really important. Selfishness, on the other hand, reflects a me-first attitude, determining just how much you can get for yourself, often at the expense of others. And unless we be confused too, this idea of sacrifice is not this kind of dour, I'm just going like, to sacrifice to this other person. This is about finding joy. Because again, Jesus is our model for this. What does it say in Hebrews chapter 12? That for the joy set before him. Jesus endured the cross. That as we kill our selfishness, as we become more and more selfless, we enter into greater joy. This is the pathway to joy. So I don't want you to hear this language of sacrifice and think like, oh, marriage is just always going to be so hard and it's the worst and I just got to like, destroy all sense of who I am. And no, the, 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 as you enter into this dance, you find a deep joy. And, and think about the best marriages you know. Uh, who are your heroes when you think of marriage? Whose marriages do you admire? Isn't that what you see? Like this, this joyful serving of one another? I mean, if you're married, isn't that what you want in your own marriage? If you're not married, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing I want someday if, I, if I'm married. In marriage, you sacrifice one another, as you serve one another, put the other first, die to yourself, give up your demands, you are reenacting in a small way what God has done in a big way, in Jesus, for every single person who has ever lived. Which brings us to our final point this morning, which is this, true marriage is not only subversive and sacrificial, true Christian marriage is also always a sign point, signpost. Now look at verse 32, Paul says this, as he kind of concludes this little section, he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I'm giving all this instruction about about these human marriages, but ultimately this is about Christ and the church. Marriage is meant to be a signpost, and that's vital. And I also want to say to my sister's single brothers and sisters in the room what Wesley Hill said to a group of uh, pastors at the EFCA Theology Conference years ago, that your celibate singleness is also a signpost. It mirrors how we will one day neither be given in marriage or be married that every one of us, regardless of our station in life, is a signpost. Because here's the thing, marriage, no matter how good or bad, and again, you may be in a, a wonderful marriage this morning, you couldn't be happier, you could be in a really rough patch. But marriage, no matter how good or how bad, will never be enough to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. It will never be enough for your spouse To be the one who gives you everything that you need. And and if you put that on them, you will crush them because they can't be your Savior. They can't be your Savior. There's only one who can do that, which is why you have to look where marriage is pointing, and it's pointing to Jesus, the only one who can soothe your deepest loneliness. Your spouse can't do that. They can be a companion, but they can't soothe the deepest lonely ache in your heart. They're the only one who can heal your deepest longings, satisfy your deepest longings. He is the only one who can say the words that we truly long to hear, that I will never leave you and I will never forsake you, because even the most faithful, beautiful Christian marriage for 70 years will one day be ended by death. But what Jesus promises is if you put your hope and trust in him, that not even death can separate you from his love. And because he's taken the punishment that you deserve, you can now know that the one person whose opinion of you truly matters, God's, is always, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. You are good. I am pleased with you. And Jesus, we are always loved, never abandoned, never forsaken. And this knowledge ought to release us, ought to free us, no matter our story related to marriage, because true Christian marriage is a signpost pointing us to Jesus' love for us, his bride. True Christian marriage is always subversive, always sacrificial, and always a signpost. Now, as we wrap up the message this morning, I'm going to do something a little different than we typically do. And that is, I'm going to invite Chris and Holly Justice to the platform. Uh, Chris and Holly married to one another for over 20 years, and uh, they are just a great example of a marriage. And I thought, rather than tell you this morning, like, oh, here's how a great marriage should work, I thought I just want to show you one example of what a good marriage can look like. Now, Chris and Holly are not, not the ultimate, and every marriage is gonna look different, you know, but they're an example of just a good, healthy marriage. And I've known them for a long time, uh, over, over a decade, probably 13, 14 years now, and I've just got to, to witness their marriage. So Chris and Holly, come come on up and join me. So I just wanted to ask them a few questions uh, about marriage and how this has played out for them. Again, every marriage is different. Um, but here's one example of, of how this can work itself out. So Chris, Holly, thank you for joining me. You know Holly. She's part of our pastoral team, um, but Chris and Holly have been a part of Christ community and, and our church family for, for years and years. So um, yeah, let me just ask you a few questions here. So first of all, how has your understanding of marriage grown and changed through the years? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I will say that when we were getting married and I mean, I was 20, so um, I had a lot to learn. <laughs> but um, I had this idea that we were each gonna go in with this really clean, like Excel spreadsheet list where there were two columns, and it was Chris's roles and Holly's roles, and like these are the things I will absolutely do, you know, and these are the things that you completely have covered, and we will stay in our lane, and we will do our thing, you know? And that... um,
3: Kind of like a job description. (laughs) Exactly.
2: Right, right. No, I would have been fired. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, life didn't work that way. It didn't work that way way at all. It wasn't this clean, never changing list. So it was more like, I mean, I loved your example of just a dance. it's always changing, needs arise, um, you flex. It was, I say it's like marbled paper where you start with these big dollops of paint and then as you swirl them and you tip them and you move them, you create this new beautiful thing but you kind of can't tell where one, you know, one point starts and one point ends. So that yeah, was-
3: It's a lot more fluid I think and, and fluid over time, fluid during the day, you know, what, what we, um, you might normally do, sometimes you're sick, sometimes I do it, Sa- same thing with me. And, you know, job demands, kid demands, like we just, we, got, we flex all the time. Yeah,
1: that's really good. Um, well, What's something you'd wish you'd known when you were first married? So thinking back, you know, 20 plus years ago, what's something you wish you would've known back then?
3: Yeah, we, we were married in 1999, so that was a while ago. Um, and uh, one of the things I, I kind of wish I would've understand back then was just how much we would change. I would say that over those, that time, we've really become a series of different people. You know, through different job experiences, with kids, you know, all, all, all the things. We were made in college. We were different people in college than we are today, um, and so, yeah, I think just learning to love the people that you know we're becoming, learning to love, you know, seeing how Holly's turning into a new person, you know, constantly, all the time, and we're probably not done changing. So we're we we have a few more iterations before. Uh,
2: yeah. yeah, and I would say, um, I think that when, when we got married, um, I thought, okay, my, my best friend will, will always know what I need. Like, <laughs> he knows me better than anybody else. And so, so if I drop like, Subtle hints about what I, you know, hope for or want. Yeah, I hear that laugh because it's true, right? You're like, I mean, you know, I, I tried this little hint thing and it, it did not work. Uh, so, I mean, that is something I I would say to my younger self um, is just really clearly, uh, just just voice your expectations with with clarity, with you know, with graciousness, but let, let each other know like, what your expectations are. And, and we try to do this, um, like we do this on Saturdays. Uh, so we start the day and we both say, what do you want for today? And so Chris will let me know, like, these are the things that are most important for me today. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is, this is what's most important for me. And so then we kind of work, work that list together. Like, well, how can we accomplish what, what we long for um, rather than you know, a winner or a loser? Yeah. So.
1: That's good. I'm sure uh, that that doesn't always work out perfectly, though. So I'm curious, not that we have to do like a marriage counseling thing right here, but what does conflict look like in your marriage? Like when yeah, those expectations aren't met or they're not clear? Or just Yeah, I, I'm just curious. Every good relationship has, has conflict that's a part of it, and I'm just wondering, yeah, how has that played out for you guys?
2: Yeah, we, um, oh, with our personalities, we don't have a lot of like rip-roaring, Bites, but we have a lot of annoyances that add up or just the little things that kind of drive you crazy. And um, we often look back to this piece of advice that was given to us in our premarital counseling, which um, was to just assume positive intent. And I can't tell you how many times that little phrase goes through my mind, assume positive intent. Um, when, when Chris doesn't show up for something, it's really easy to, like, you know, my blood pressure rises, and my brain kind of freaks out, and I've created a story as to why he's done this, and why doesn't he care for me, and, you know, all these things. And um, if I kind of quickly click back into that um, way of thinking, okay, nope, he loves me. Um, There's a reason for this. I got to think about the situation. Just kind of move back into that place. Um, Yeah, I think that that's that happens a
3: lot (laughs) yeah on both of us yeah and i would also say that one of the practices that we've had for a long time that's been helpful for us is when we are in disagreement about a, a big topic that time is on our side you know we see a lot of our friends really get wrapped around the axle when they try to resolve big important topics quickly and the world can wait for us to figure it out to sort it out and so we'll take our time if we're not in alignment that's our cue to keep talking, to keep working, to keep understanding. And I, I just don't recall a time when we've moved forward on an important decision without us both being on the same page. And sometimes that takes days, weeks. It
2: takes years some, for years. some of the things, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah.
3: And I think you know, there's this, um, there's this saying that, that is true that you know, don't, don't let the sun go down on your anger. It's actually in the Bible. Um, <laughs> but I feel like you can let the sun go down on a disagreement you can take the time that it needs to come to resolution on on big, important topics. So don't go to bed angry, but also take the time that you need to to work out, you know, some of those important things.
1: That's really good, you guys. Well, as we wrap up here, just what's something you want every married couple to know? What would you you say to them? Yeah.
2: Yeah, something that we talked about. I just think that one of the most toxic things you can do is um, just talk poorly or badmouth your spouse with other people uh, when they're not there or when they are there and you nitpick them or you shame them or call out something that really it doesn't matter. Like, yeah, it's one thing where he's like, I think it starts at seven and you're like, no, it starts at eight. I mean, that's different, but um, it's just an excellent way to, um, to just break unity um, so don't do it. It's not, it's not worth it. Usually, um, this is where I think um, the way submission and laying your life, down, laying, you laying your life down for me. I mean, this plays out because we're laying down those urges mm-hmm. to just say the thing, and a lot of times those urges are really selfishly motivated. Yeah. It might make me look better, or you know, it's a great story, or whatever. But um, I think also clarifying with each other. You know, there are some things that, um, you know, we have found peace with funny things in our marriage, or, or even hard things where, like, you know, Chris is kind of a...
3: You like, mean where we're not aligned? we're
2: not aligned. Like, <laughs> you know, he's kind of a stockpiler, doomsday prepper, um, you know. Which
3: worked really good during a global pandemic. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: it did. Uh,
2: <laughs> and, like, and I, I like to throw away everything. I mean, I really do. I want to clean up everything and throw it away. Uh, but, like, we have we have peace with those topics because we've We've been upset about them, but we've come to a place where we can agree about it, laugh about it. So, that, yeah, that's one thing. But if it is still raw and it is still unresolved, you don't need to bring anybody else into it. Like, that's just good rule of thumb. So, we have learned that together.
1: That's great, you guys. Can we give Chris and Holly just
2: thank them? Thank you guys so much for coming up and being a part of this. And so.